appreciate it. Well, thank you, everyone, and good morning. I'm, I'm so glad to be here. I always, I'm on the East Coast, and uh, I'd love to come out to California, especially Northern California, because it's so much prettier up here, right? So um, I was here last year, uh, not at this church, but I had, um, I spoke at San Jose State uh, for Ratio Christi, and then the next day I did a debate at Sacramento State uh, against an atheist philosophy professor there. It was fun. So when they asked me to come back here, it's like, well, this is cool. I like going to Northern California. And I get to go to some really neat places and do some really neat things. And um, one of the fun parts of this past spring was my church uh, we lived in, my family lived in Virginia Beach for 14 years, and my home church back there invited me to come back on Palm Sunday and speak there, uh, do a, a seminar on Saturday morning, and then give the worship service there uh, Sunday morning, Palm Sunday. So Palm Sunday evening, um, it was uh, the pastor, uh, Michael Simone and his wife, they're just great, uh, love those people, and they took us out to dinner at this really, really nice Italian restaurant one of the nicest I've ever eaten. And while we're sitting there, uh, Michael Simone leans forward and he says, um, hey, did you and Debbie, did, did, either, did you guys ever watch the television series Lost? And I said, yeah, yeah, we got some Lost fans, yeah, all right. So I said, um, yeah, you know, we didn't watch it while it was on, but when it was all over, then we just did this marathon thing on Netflix to just watch all the lost, and we couldn't stop watching them until it was over. We just loved it. And he says, well, do you remember the character John Locke? He was a bald guy, but muscular. I said, well, yeah, yeah, I remember him. He said, well, his name is Terry O'Quinn, and he actually lives here in Virginia Beach. And he leaned forward, and he says, now, I don't want you to turn around, but he's sitting in the booth behind you. <laughs> so that was pretty cool. Well, and everything was said and done within the next uh, two minutes, I ended up having my picture taken with him, and um, it, it was pretty cool, you know. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so that was that was really him. So, um, yeah, it didn't. I, so anyway, we get to do some really cool stuff. Um, but um, I really appreciate what you're doing here at the church. Uh, I mean, I only know of one other church in this country. There's some others, but I only know of one other church in this country that is devoted to teaching apologetics as much as your church is. And that church is down in the Los Angeles area. I've, I've been there twice at, at that church, uh, Living Oaks Church, good church. But you guys are just cutting edge. You're pastors. You guys are doing stuff here that other churches just aren't doing, and it is so necessary. And the reason it's necessary, I, I mean, I don't know, you know, living in the divided states of America is, can get kind of difficult at times, can it? I mean, you've got all these racial tensions going on in Virginia right now, and um, whites hating blacks, blacks hating whites, and I mean, I can tell you that's not, I lived in Virginia for a while, and it's, it's not like that throughout the entire state of Virginia. Um, but you do have some bad groups uh, like that, and you've got these racial tensions, um, and then the tensions between the political left and the political right. I mean, these guys aren't they're talk, they're not talking to one another. We've got these, uh, Washington just can't seem to get anything done, and there's you know, a lot of animosity uh, be between the two parties and, and stuff. And it's not gonna be politics that solves our problem, is it? Um, there's only one who can do it, and that's the Prince of Peace. And as our country uh, becomes more post-Christian and anti-Christian, it's gonna be more and more um, 
necessary for us to engage in Christian apologetics because we, we don't live in a Christian nation anymore. We live in a post-Christian culture. And you, know, you go off to school. I mean, I've, I've spoken on more than 100 college campuses, and there are so many students all over the country, in the deep south, way up north, the west, the east coast, uh, even in the great state of Texas, where uh, you'll have, just like in the movies, God is not dead. Well, you have a professor on the first day asking how many are Christians. And when they raise their hand and say, my objective is by the end of the semester, you will no longer be a Christian. It's happening all over the country. Um, you wouldn't have a professor saying, though, how many of you are Muslims? How many of you are atheists? You, know, you couldn't do that, right? But it is an open season on Christians, and that is why we need good answers. Um, and so I, they've asked me to come and talk about what is really, I, honestly, I'm not just saying it because I'm talking about it, but it, I think it's the most important topic in Christian apologetics we can discuss. And so let's look at that. We're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. What is the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus? Now, I can't go into a ton of evidence, all right, today. Um, I've written a book that's a little over 700 pages on this. Um, so there's a lot of information out there, and you can watch some debates and lectures I've got on my website, online, on YouTube. Um, but I'm going to get into some just give you something that you can take with you and use and hopefully encourage you. Um, let's talk about why the Jesus resurrection is so important, okay? For one, Jesus made some really radical claims. He claimed to be that he uh, predicted his imminent death and resurrection. And so if Jesus did not rise from the dead, that makes him a false prophet, right? Why should we get up on a Sunday morning and go worship someone who's a false prophet? and a failed Messiah. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he's a false prophet. Christianity is false. All right. Second, I guess this is, I, I thought that it would reach back here, but I might have to pull this up so that the, um, my clicker and the antenna on it will work. All right. So Paul, who may very well be the earliest writer of the New Testament literature, in 1 Corinthians 15, he's answering some questions about life after death. Is there going to be life after death? What's it like? And at one point, he says, look, it, uh, you had some people in, in the town of Corinth, and they were telling the Christians that there is no afterlife. There is, there's no general resurrection in which you're going to be raised from the dead later on. When you die, that's it. You become worm food, and you're not going to see any kind of afterlife. So Paul is talking about this, and he says, look, if if the dead aren't going to be raised, if we're not going to be raised later on, then that means Christ was not raised from the dead. And if Christ was not raised, Paul says, your faith is worthless. In fact, in the original Greek, the term worthless comes first, and he said that worthless is your faith because he's putting an emphasis on that. So absolutely worthless, useless is your faith if Christ was not raised from the dead. You are still in your sins because he's a failed Messiah. His death does not atone for your sins. And those who have died in Christ have perished. So if you have any loved ones or friends who were Christians and they died, you're still never going to see them again. You, they're lost. They're gone. They no longer exist. They have perished. So 
and later on in the chapter, he says, just a few verses later, he says, look, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Another Paul is basically saying, look, there is no hope for us. Why are we enduring as Christians persecution in the Roman Empire? Some of us dying, and, and he says that he's being... Uh, he faces, and the other apostles face the threat of death every day. He'd been imprisoned, he'd been stoned, he'd been beaten, um, all kinds of stuff. Why should we endure all this if the dead aren't going to be raised? So if the dead aren't going to be raised, Christ wasn't raised, we're not going to be raised. If that's the case, the Christian life is not worth living. Party today, get all the sex you want, get all the weed you want, whatever you want, just go out and do it. Uh, suck the marrow out of life, get everything you can out of it because this life is all there is. Eat dessert. Go for it. So Paul's argument, here it is. If, the, if Christ is not raised, the dead will not be raised. We're not going to be raised. If the dead will not be raised, this life is all there is. And if this life is all there is, the Christian life is not worth living. But he doesn't stop there. He says, but Christ has been raised. Therefore, we, the dead will be raised, or we will be raised, and the Christian life is worth living. And th this is really important because, you know, if you're a college student here, a high school student, and you go out to school and you're just being mocked for being a Christian, you're facing all sorts of temptations, you know, why not give in to those? Christian life is not worth living if Christ was not raised, but if he was raised, the Christian life is worth living and you're justified and right in holding your ground. It's the other folks that are wrong. So what evidence do we have for the resurrection of Jesus? Like I said, I can't get into a lot, but I do want to share some things, a few things with you. I want to go in what we could consider the best source for Jesus' resurrection. What is our finest source for Jesus' resurrection? Well, maybe you're thinking, okay, well, it's got to be the Gospels, right? Because they're the ones that are going to provide the resurrection narratives. Um, but actually, they're not our finest sources. They are fine sources. Um, in fact, I'm in the midst of doing uh, lectures and writing a book on the historical reliability of the Gospels now. And I had a book come out last year about contradictions in the Gospels, why the Gospels uh, ha have differences. Why are there differences in the Gospels? Um, but you have a lot of attacks on the Gospels, so I want to kind of simplify some things. One of the main guys out there attacking the Gospels today is Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman is a happy agnostic who teaches at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. He's probably the most influential skeptical New Testament scholar in North America. I consider Bart to be a friend. We've engaged in three public debates um, and two public dialogues, and we really have strong disagreements. And, of course, he's wrong. Um, <laughs> But we get along pretty well. Um, so um, he comes out against the Gospels. One of his main arguments is uh, against like the resurrection that we'd be talking about is that the Gospels are not trustworthy sources. And he gives five major reasons for that. And so I've cataloged these and made them easy to remember. And um, so we've got the ABCs, Ds, and Es. You have authorship. He says, we don't know who wrote the Gospels. The authors were biased. Um, and so we can't trust them. The Gospels contain contradictions. They don't agree on so much. 
dating, they were written 35 to 65 years after the events they purport to describe, so we, it's just too long, you can't trust them. Um, and they don't contain eyewitness testimony. And by the way, uh, yeah, they're not even written by eyewitnesses. They don't have any eyewitness testimony. And even if they did, eyewitness testimony is not trustworthy, he says. So I've taken these. I won't be able to deal with these uh, this morning in depth. But if you're interested, I did come up with a lecture on this. And it's called the ABCs, Ds, and Es of Defending the Gospels. You can go to my website, risenjesus.com or go to my YouTube channel, Mike Lacona, and you can see this uh, lecture. All right, so, um, but I do wanna just give you a, a little uh, teaser for it. Um, one of the arguments he gives, Ehrman gives, for why uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did not write the Gospels um, is because Jesus' disciples were illiterate. So they were fishermen for the most part, or Matthew was a tax collector, most of these guys just were illiterate, and so they could not have written the Gospels attributed to them, especially like John, or probably Mark, all right? What I would point out is that even highly educated folks who could read and write, they often use scribes when writing. I'll give you an example. Cicero was one of the most highly educated guys of his day, and Cicero had, um, a scribe named Tiro. And there was on one occasion when Antony, you remember Antony and Cleopatra, uh, he had Antony over for dinner, and Antony said, read me something, give me, give me something, you're such a great orator, you come up with these great things, Cicero. And Cicero's writing a letter to Tiro, who was out of town at that point, and he says, Tiro, I, I refuse to do it, and just told him that you make me sound so much better. So here you've got really educated Cicero, and he has a scribe who not only just takes notes um, and, and transcribes what Cicero is saying, take the dictation, but he edits it and makes Cicero sound so much better. What about Paul? What's the crown jewel of Paul's letters? It's Romans. If you go to Romans chapter 16, verse 22, it says, I, Tertius, who write this letter, send you my greetings. Paul had a scribe, and in fact, at the end of several of his letters, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, which means he didn't write the rest of it. But if you read some of Paul's letters, and then you go to Romans, it's just this great, beautiful, it's laid out in ways that the others aren't laid out, and it's probably because not only did Paul um, tell Tiro or uh, Tertius what he wanted to include in it, um, and Tertius may have heard him speak a lot, and he wanted to talk about these things, but he allowed Tertius to have a pretty good free hand in composing uh, the letter to the church at Rome and making Paul sound so much better. So in that case, it wouldn't matter whether Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John could read and write, whether they were literate, because they could have had scribes, of course, who could have done these things, as was commonly done even amongst the most highly educated. All right, so who's our best source? Paul. He's our ace. And why is he so good? Well, Paul was, by his own uh, testimony, was a non-believer at the time of his conversion. He wasn't a Christian. He was out persecuting the church. He believed it was God's will to destroy the church. And all of a sudden, he has this experience one day of the risen Jesus, and it radically transforms his life from being a persecutor of the church to one of its most able defenders. Now, Paul, in his letter to the church at Galatia, 
says that three years after his conversion, he went up to Jerusalem and he spent 15 days with Peter, the lead apostle. The Greek term used for that is hysteresi, from which we get the English word history. Paul was saying he wants a history of Jesus. He didn't walk with him. He wasn't one of Jesus' disciples. He wants to get the whole nine yards from those who were with Jesus, and who better than Peter, the lead apostle, right? So he spends 15 days with him, and he saw James, the brother of Jesus, as well, he says. Then he says later on, he goes up again a few years later, he goes back to Jerusalem, and now he's going to meet with the pillars of the church, and he gives their names, Peter, James, and John. And so you've got the four of them meeting, the fab four, and they're talking theology, they're talking history, they're talking about what Jesus said and did. Wouldn't you love to have been a fly on the wall at that meeting? And that's in Galatians chapter 2. And there Paul says, I went up to the pillars of the church, Peter, James, and John, and I ran the gospel message past them that I'd been preaching to ensure that I was preaching the same thing they were preaching, that I wasn't running in vain, working in vain. I can imagine that. He's, he's, between, he's up with them again, and he's, he's, guys, I just want to make sure that I'm saying the same message as you. All right, Paul, give it to us. And you have Peter, James, and John, and they're sitting behind this table, and Paul's standing before them, maybe a little nervous, and he said, well, here's what I'm preaching. And he goes into it. And so James says, okay, James, uh, he's, James is the leader in the Jerusalem church at that point. He says, all right, Paul, why don't you leave the room for a moment? We're going to talk. We'll call you back in in a minute. So Paul leaves the room. And they're talking. All right, guys, let's get together. Pete, what do you think? What did you hear? Yeah, that's pretty good. How about you, Johnny? What do you think? Yeah, I think he's, he's good. All right, well, here's what I'm going to do. All right, all right, bring him back in. So the guy at the door says, hey, Paul, they want you. So Paul comes in, he stands before them. He's a little nervous, and, and um, James has this real serious look on his face. He's going to play around with Paul a little bit. He says, Paul, we've been talking about this, and uh, we heard your message, and, um, well, you're good, brother. Fist bump. Keep up the good work. So... They verify, they certify that Paul is preaching the same gospel message as the Jerusalem apostles, Peter, James, and John, who had known Jesus personally. At least that's what Paul says. Now, of course, you know, as a historian, I look and say, well, that could very well be true. But Paul might have been motivated to lie or maybe stretch the truth a little bit so that he could still have authority in some of the churches. So how do we know Paul was telling the truth? Well, historians look for corroborating data. And so it just happens that we have, did you know that some of the apostles had disciples of their own? Like um, Peter had a disciple named Clement of Rome. And Clement said, uh, called Paul the blessed and glorious Paul. And he placed Paul on par with his mentor, Peter. And then you got a guy named Polycarp. Now some of you remember this name, like maybe someday you get married, you have kids, and you're gonna have a boy, and you're gonna look for names, just remember Polycarp, okay? Some decent names here. So Polycarp, he ends up getting martyred later on, but he's a disciple of John. And Polycarp, in his letter to the church at Philippi, says that Paul accurately and reliably taught the message of truth. And he's saying this after Paul had died. So he's got no pressure from Paul there. Um, so you've got people who knew Peter and John, and they heard Paul, and they said, Paul's right on, and they provide independent reports. So it would seem to suggest that Paul was telling the truth. I've got even some more evidence I could give you, but I've got to move on. But that should at least suggest to you 
show you that when we are hearing Paul on the essential gospel message, the essentials of the Christian faith, we are likewise hearing the voice of the Jerusalem apostles. Now, wouldn't it be nice to have something, um, you know, to, it, it, that it, it spelled out his gospel message? Wouldn't it be neat if there was some archaeologists were digging around Jerusalem or Corinth and they found this document, one of Paul's lost letters, and it says, I want to remind you of the gospel message that I preached to you. Wouldn't that be awesome? That'd be historical gold. Well, we don't have to wait for something like that because we already have it. It's Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians. Um, and here's what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Now I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel message I preached to you. And now on the verses that come right after that, 3 through 8, are, he's going to give us an outline of that gospel message. So he starts off in verse 3. He says, I delivered to you what I also received. Now here's what, what he's talking about here. Delivered and received were technical terms denoting the uh, imparting of oral tradition. So only probably 10% could read back then, and people learned through oral tradition. And this was not like the game of telephone. They were really serious about it, and there were means in place to help them remember these things and to, and to keep it correct. And I want to show you a little of that. And I'm sorry for the small font, but I needed to do it that way in order to show you. This is called parallelism, and it's long, short, long, short. So today you might have something where there's a rhythm to it, and maybe it rhymes at the end, and that helps you re remember things. But at, back then, they would do like parallelism, long, short, long, short. Sometimes they would use catch words. So maybe fire, light, warmth. Catchworms are like puns. They relate to one another, and they'd help you remember things in that way. So keeping that in mind, you look here, and it's, Paul says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared. So you see, long, short, long, short. You have Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, and his appearances. And then Paul goes on to name those appearances says he appeared to Peter, then to the 12, to more than 500, to James, to all the apostles, and then to Paul. Two things here. Number one, you got three group appearances, three individual appearances. We'll get to the group appearances in a minute because that's really important. The other thing, what are we missing from this list? The women. Why don't we have the appearance to the women at the tomb? Well, because back in antiquity, as it is in much of the Middle East today, at least in Muslim countries, women were just very lowly esteemed and their testimony was basically worthless. So why, if this is the official and formal proclamation of the disciples, the apostles, on what happened to Jesus, you just don't mention the women because it's gonna hurt you, it's not gonna help you. So, but you've got all these, you've got the males, you've got individuals, and you've got groups here. And then Paul says, whether I or the other apostles, this is what we preached, and this is what you believed. And the term that he uses there for preached preach is kerygma, which means the official and formal public proclamation. So again, Paul has given us an outline of that gospel message, and we can trace this back to the Jerusalem apostles. So apart, if, even if we, had, if we did not have Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, we could get back to what the apostles were preaching regarding Jesus' resurrection just based on Paul. That's pretty cool, isn't it? And remember, you can't accuse him 
of having been this biased Christian who saw the risen Jesus because he saw Jesus while he was persecuting the church. He was an enemy at the time. So here's why Paul is our best source. He was hostile at the time of his conversion. He's an early source, perhaps the earliest writer of the New Testament. He claims to have been an eyewitness of the risen Jesus. He knew Jesus' disciples, and we can certify that he was preaching the same gospel message they were preaching. It doesn't get any better than this. Now, maybe you'd say, well, Mike, I can think of a better source. What if there was a non-Christian that said Jesus rose from the dead and he saw him? That would be a better source, wouldn't it? No. If someone said, I saw Jesus risen from the dead and I'm not a Christian, we would think such a person was a moron, not a credible source. And think about it, even if we had that, how, do you really think people would say that that was a real source or would they say the Christians just invented that and crafted that and fabricated that source? It's not a real source. So even if we had such a thing, it wouldn't be a credible source. This is as good as it gets in terms of a historical source for being able to verify things. All right, and what does it tell us? Just from Paul, what we get just from him, here's a few things. Number one, we know that Jesus' disciples taught that he was raised from the dead. Number two, Jesus' disciples taught that Jesus, after his resurrection, appeared to individuals, to groups, to friend and foe alike. And number three, Jesus' disciples intended for us to interpret the resurrection as an actual event. Remember, Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, because if Christ wasn't raised, we're not going to be raised. Therefore, the Christian life is not worth living if Christ was not raised. So the whole thing depends on the resurrection being an actual event. Paul would be the first to say, you can't interpret it as a metaphor. It's not just a nice story. If Christ was not raised, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. They actually intended for us to understand it as an, a real event. So these are just three things that we can know that go right back to Jesus' disciples that we can know from Paul. Again, apart from the Gospels, we can just know this from Paul alone, which is pretty cool stuff. Now the question is, what do we do with these facts? Historians look at the facts, that when they, they say, all right, what are the facts that we can know? All right, we can know this. We can say, know that they were teaching that Jesus appeared to them. They really believed Jesus appeared to them because they were willing to die for that. We've got people like um, Luke, Tertullian, John, Dionysus of Corinth, Origen, uh, Ignatius, Polycarp, Clement of Rome. They all mention how the disciples were willing to suffer, and they were willing to suffer to the point of death for their gospel proclamation. All right, so they were not only claiming that Jesus rose from the dead, they really believed it. So what do we do with this? What do we do with these? We've got our facts. Now what you do, historians formulate hypotheses, and you compare those to see which hypothesis best explains the facts. So let's, let's look at a couple of hypotheses. What are some of the alternatives? One, legend or myth that developed over time. But that's extremely unlikely. In fact, it's impossible because we know that we can trace this back to the apostles themselves and at the earliest time. So there just wasn't time for this. Now, we know that urban legends do develop and they develop quickly, but it's not the apostles that are spreading any kind of urban legends. They're teaching that Jesus was raised. So it wasn't a legend or a myth that developed over time. Um, deceit. 
Disciples were lying about it. Well, like we mentioned, they were all willing to suffer and die for their gospel proclamation. Liars make poor martyrs. And why would they be willing, so willing to suffer and die for something they knew was a known lie? Um, you know, my mom died four years ago. My dad three years ago died. But I remember uh, my mom, I, she, she was in hospice. She only had a few days left. And um, I don't know if any of you have read the book or saw the movie 90 Minutes in Heaven. A guy named Don Piper. Yeah, it's really good. I, I've talked to the guy. Um, I think he's the real deal. And... Um, what was really interesting, because I thought he was the real deal after reading his book, when my mom was dying, I, I read a chapter of that book to her every day, and it was so encouraging. This is a Southern Baptist pastor who dies in this horrible car wreck. He's, he's dead for 90 minutes, and he says he's in heaven, and he comes back and he tells about it and all this stuff. Pretty cool. I know some of those are fake stories, but there are certain accounts, there are about 300 of them, where there are corroborating data. That, that would suggest that they're, uh, the person's telling the truth. So, um, make a long story short, Don Piper called my mom one, one night while she's in the hospital, spoke to her for 11 minutes, and said, look, I know you think you're gonna miss your family, but you're not, there, there's, heaven's timeless. So it's like you're gonna be in heaven, and all of a sudden you turn around and your family's there. And as Mike read to you the book, as you heard, the sounds, the music, the colors that you've never seen, it's just fantastic in heaven, and the love and the peace, and you're going to see your loved ones up there. It's just amazing. And he said, my mom's name was Joy. He said, Joy, look, I love my family. I love being around them, but I've been to heaven, and I can tell you that if God would allow me to change places with you right now, I'd do it in a flash. I wouldn't think twice about it. So he said, look, you have nothing to fear. You have everything to look forward to, so you can just go in peace and I will see you at the gates. And she mustered up all that. She hadn't spoken in over a day, and she said, thank you. And those were the last words she ever spoke. And I thought, wow, what a comfort that would have been to a person dying, you know. What a cool thing. And I think about the disciples. They had seen Jesus risen from the dead. They knew what awaited after death. They didn't have to fear death. They weren't hanging on to this life. It's kind of like if you lived in the ghetto and someone came up to you and said, hey, you, you just won the lottery and you really did. Now you're a multimillionaire and you can leave the ghetto and you can go into a marvelous mansion on Maui. You are not going to say, oh, but I want to stay here. I want to stay in this bug infested, this germ infested ghetto. I don't want to leave here. No, you couldn't get out of there fast enough. I can guarantee you that the difference between no matter how you are living here now, affluently, the difference between how you're living now in heaven, I'll bet you there's a huge gap, a bigger gap between that and a ghetto and a marvelous mansion on Maui. We have nothing to fear. These disciples had nothing to fear. So they were all willing to die, to suffer for their beliefs. What about hallucinations? Well, there's been a lot of, uh, of research done on hallucinations during the past century. And you think, well, hallucinations would appear to be a um, plausible explanation for why they think they saw Jesus. They were grief-stricken, right? But here's some things about hallucinations. Number one, the percentage of percipients involved, people saying they saw Jesus afterward, is just too high. You've got, remember it said he appeared to the twelve. He appeared to all the apostles. That's 100%. Whereas all the literature that's been done on this for the last 
century or so, have shown that only about 7% of people grieving the loss of a loved one experience a visual hallucination of that person. But it would require 100% of the apostles to have seen him. He appeared to them. So the percentage of percipients is too high. Second, group hallucinations are very unlikely, if not impossible. Now, several hours south of here, uh, near the San Diego area, is where the Navy SEALs do their Hell Week. And I used to live in Virginia Beach, and half the Navy SEALs live out there. I became friends with a number of them. Some of them went to my church, and uh, I got to talk to several dozens of them. And I'd ask them about Hell Week, and that's where they go. They start Sunday night, and they go all the way through around noon, Saturday morning, and they only get about three hours of sleep the entire week. Not every night, but the entire week. The rest of the time, they're running, they're push-ups. Uh, I mean, it's just a brutal, brutal week, and most of them don't make it through the week who are trying to become SEALs because it's just too much stress. Um, they just take you far, much, much further than what you, they, you would have even thought was humanly possible for you to do because you need that mental toughness. And so I would ask these SEALs, I'd say, well, hell week, what was it like? And uh, I started to notice that a bunch of them would tell me that they experienced hallucinations. I would say, from those I spoke to, I mean, this was unofficial, but I probably spoke to three dozen, maybe four or five dozen of them, and I'd say about 80% of them experienced hallucinations. And they would, uh, it's usually when they were in this boat, this raft going around, this thing called around the world, they'd go out in the ocean and they're in these, these races. They'd race out to a buoy and come back. And, but their minds would just be, you know, they're working hard, but their minds are just going all over the place. And one guy saw, said he saw an octopus come out of the water and wave at him. Another said he saw a train coming across the ocean toward him, and he pointed it out to the others, and they said, you idiot, there's no train out here on the Pacific. But he still believed it so much, he rolled out of the raft, they had to back up and pull him in. One guy he saw, he was a lieutenant, he said he didn't see any hallucinations, but he did remember one guy in the raft swinging a paddle, and, and they said, what are you doing? He says, I'm trying to hit these dolphins that keep jumping over the raft. You know? So they had these hallucinations, okay? They were all in the same frame of mind. Many of them were experiencing hallucinations, but they were all different hallucinations. They weren't the same hallucinations. They weren't these collective group hallucinations. Why? Because hallucinations are private occurrences in the mind of an individual. They have no external referent. They're like dreams in that sense. I couldn't wake up my wife in the middle of the night and say, honey, I'm having this dream, I'm in Maui. Go back to sleep, join me in my dream, and let's have a free vacation, right? <laughs> can't do it. It's my dream. It's not real. And so you can't have these group hallucinations. Um, and so that's another problem. And third, you got the problem of Paul. Paul was not grieving over Jesus' death. Paul was glad Jesus died, and he, 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 he was now trying to destroy the movement. He thought it was God's will to destroy the movement that Jesus had started. So Jesus would have been the last person in the universe that Paul would have expected to see or have wanted to see. So hallucinations just don't cut it. The only explanation, and look, I've debated 26 times, uh, public debates 26 times, most of those with atheists and Muslims and agnostics on the resurrection. Um, I've written a more than 700 page book on this. I mean, this is the thing I've spent so much time on. I can tell you there are no good alternative explanations that will explain the evidence as well as the resurrection hypothesis. Resurrection hypothesis does it by far better than any other explanation. 
And I think that's just huge. It's huge. We believe Jesus rose from the dead. It's a matter of faith. No matter what worldview you have, it's a matter of faith. Because there's no way that any of us can get into a time machine, return to the past, and verify our conclusions. Nobody can do that. That's why even atheistic scientists have conflicting views on the origin of, 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 of life, or even the origin of the universe, or how many, whether there's just this one universe or multi-universes. They can't, even atheists don't agree on their atheistic worldview on the origins, matter of origins. We can't get into the time machine and verify our conclusions. So everybody goes by faith. What I love about this historical evidence for the resurrection, though, is it's not just pure faith. We've got really good evidence, and when you apply historical method to it, the resurrection is the best evidence. And so if you have some problems that are going on right now, maybe you just got um, uh, news that you have stage four cancer, and they've given you a few months to live, or maybe your family has just blown up, or your relationship has just blown up, or you've lost your job, something is just wrong, and it's just crushing you right now. Well, this, this life is just going to be relatively short, and one second in heaven after seeing God, it's just not going to matter. Resurrection happened. We matter to God, and because of that, this, this life, the Christian life, is worth living. Let me give you something else. There's a lot of objections out there, as you'll be hearing over these next couple of weeks, being um, addressed in, in apologetics with the other speakers coming. Um, I hear a lot of uh, objections out there, okay? No matter what these objections are, though, think of how the resurrection addresses that. I, I love it when people say, well, there's contradictions in the Gospels and we can't even trust them. Hey, look, I just devoted eight years to studying that. Just had a book published by Oxford University Press that deals with differences in the Gospels. If you want some answers to that, get the book. Or go listen, watch one of my lectures on the topic uh, on my website. However, let's just say I got it all wrong. I'm all wrong on that, and there are real errors and contradictions in the Gospels. All right? If Jesus rose from the dead, I was saying this to Jeff and Amy at dinner last night, if Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity is true, period. And that means if Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity is true, even if it were to be the case that some things in the Bible aren't. Think about that for a moment. Well, Mike, what about the genocide in the Old Testament? Yeah, I, I'll be honest, that kind of bothers me when I read it. But you know, there's some guys out there, Paul Copan and Matthew Flanagan, that talk about that. And uh, did God commit genocide in the Old Testament? There's some books written on that, and I think they've got some plausible explanations. But let's just say for a moment, worst case scenario, they're wrong. And you really had these gen this genocide done in the name of God on behalf of these um, um, Old Testament, these Israelite kings. Then that means what we're reading in the Old Testament is, would be religio-political propaganda meant to justify the acts of a brutal Israelite king. But if Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity is still true, isn't it? Even if that were the case. You think about this for a moment. When was the first gospel written? Well, most scholars believe it was the gospel of Mark, probably 35 to 65 years after Jesus. Well, let's say Mark had some problems, and Mark has some things wrong in it. If Jesus rose from the dead, is Christianity true? Yep. Was it true in the 35 to 40 years before Mark was written? Yep. 
Well, how could some problems with the Gospel of Mark then negate the truth of Christianity when it was true before Mark was even written? You see how we can just allow some things which are relatively, relatively speaking, unimportant to the resurrection? If Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity is true, period. And I get excited about that. I'm glad you guys allowed me to share some with you. Um, if you want more information, we do have some books. I hardly make any money off the books. Um, they said, bring 100 with you. I brought 35. I hate bringing them. I don't, make, I don't make much off of them. And I figured, well, I don't want to have to take the chance of bringing them home. And those who really want the more information, they're going to go get it. So there's only like 35 out there, okay? So we've got some, um, if, you, if you want some, like a self-study course on the evidence for the resurrection, get the case for the resurrection of Jesus that Gary Habermas and I co-authored. If you are someone like Jeff Wagner or the pastor, someone really into apologetics, get the big book, the case for the resurrection of Jesus, a new historiographical approach. If you're interested in gospel contradictions, there's a book on that as well. Other than that, Go to my website. We've got all kinds of lectures and debates on there that you can watch, and you can see and judge for yourself whether this stuff works. God bless you guys. Uh, let's close in prayer. Thank you for having me. Lord, thank you so much for this uh, time that I could be out here with my brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray that you bless them, and thank you for this church, for the pastor, for the folks that are putting together this uh, apologetics conference over these weeks in which the speakers are coming. Bless, Lord, encourage your, uh, your followers. And Lord, if there are folks here who are just seeking and they're wanting to know if there's evidence, Lord, may they take this and be able to wrestle with this in their minds and their hearts in the weeks to come. We ask in Christ's name, amen.